whether you like history or not. If you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, a writer, and a martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. This is the third time in a row that History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com. For the time being, this will be their last episode to sponsor. They may come back later on, but this is kind of a big deal because it's a test. You know, if it works and enough people decide to check out Blue Apron via my link, the odds are good that more sponsors will come my way and help out the podcast. So if you're even remotely considering Blue Apron, it would be great if you can please check them out at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Besides doing me a favor, I actually really truly believe in what they do. I enjoyed, I tried their services first before deciding whether I wanted to pitch them to you or not. And I was extremely happy with the experience. Uh, more about this at the end of the episode. Also, of course, a huge thank you to the two sponsors who are always in my corner, specifically Datsusara and Onnit. Um, Datsusara produces the best bags I've ever had, you know, all handmade, super high quality gear. I use them all the time. And Onnit supplements never fail to amaze me in the wide variety of great products that they offer. So for both, you can go at dsgear.com and use the code Daniele for a discount or go to onnit at onnit.com forward slash history. These guys, incidentally, have also sponsored my lady, Savannah M, for her upcoming pro debut in MMA. For these, they have my undying loyalty. But more about these at the end of the episode. So for now... Without further ado, let's go set history on fire. If thanks to magical powers or to a time machine, you found yourself in 1901 inside the White House, by the time Roosevelt had just been inaugurated president and walked into the Oval Office, the odds are high that you would find yourself puzzled, to say the least. Because the sights, the sounds, the smells, everything about the Roosevelt family in the White House, let's just say it, they would not exactly be the kind of stuff that you would expect to experience when visiting the family of the President of the United States. Roosevelt, at only 42 years old, was the youngest man to ever hold this position. And it's safe to say that during his tenure in office, the White House would be at its wildest. It literally was like a zoo. You know, if you 
were strolling down the halls in the White House, the, it's likely that you would run into the Roosevelt kids riding ponies up and down the stairs. There were dogs everywhere. They had uh, lizards, a badger, parrots. Uh, the youngest of the Roosevelt kids would regularly think it was great fun to walk in while his father, Theodore, was entertaining visiting congressmen and just drop off his own snake into the laps of the poor congressman. And rather than chastising him, Roosevelt just would laugh and think he was the funniest thing ever. I honestly don't think that the visiting congressman thought he was quite as humorous, but Roosevelt apparently did. You would also have to dodge often, because the Roosevelt kids were roller skating through the White House. They would be throwing snowballs during winter at anyone coming over to visit. Uh, the president himself would get into the action. He would often stage elaborate pillow fights with his kids and would chase them around the house pretending to be a bear, making bear sounds and everything else. There hadn't been kids in the White House in a long time, so it was it was kind of normal that it would be a little wilder than usual, but in this case it was a lot wilder than usual. Roosevelt himself, you know, even if you forget about his kids, just... Roosevelt himself, there's some people dreaded visiting the White House because Roosevelt would regularly spar in both uh, wrestling and boxing. And more often than not, he decided to recruit, I would, maybe I should shift it, forcibly recruit, because it really didn't matter if you were willing or unwilling, recruit anybody visiting as a sparring partner for his wrestling and boxing sessions. His overall parenting style, his impulsiveness, his passion for combat sports, his wild enthusiasm, his fondness for horseplay, and his general over-the-top personality prompted the British ambassador Cecil Spring-Rice, who actually liked Roosevelt, but still prompted him to comment, you must always remember that the president is about six. Roosevelt does, I mean, from all the description, Roosevelt does come across as this big kid with a larger-than-life personality who somehow got stuck in an adult body and somehow actually got stuck in the body of a guy who ended up being president of the United States. I must say I relate, not to the being president of the United States part, that's not on my resume yet, but... To, to the other side of it, you know, this idea of you must always remember the president is about six. You know, I once did an episode of uh, the Drunken Taoist podcast entitled Juvenile and Proud. Uh, I, I tend to find that the typical idea of what a responsible adult is supposed to look like to be sincerely sad and a bit pathetic. And apparently Theodore Roosevelt did too. He was very much juvenile and he was clearly quite proud of it. Partially, Theodore Roosevelt was eccentric and different because, well, because he was Theodore Roosevelt. But in part, he was different from previous presidents, also because the United States of 1901 was completely unlike the US of a few years prior. Roosevelt was the first president to be born in a city. He was the first to own a car, the first to fly in an airplane. He was the first to travel outside of the country while he was in office. 
He used the media more than any president before him. He was also the first president to invite an African-American to dine at the White House. He had dinner with the famous African-American author, Booker T. Washington. In explaining his choice, Roosevelt had said, The very fact that I felt a moment's qualm on inviting him because of his color made me ashamed of myself and made me send the invitation. To put it mildly, this did not go well with large segments of the American population. Since a white supremacist ideology was mainstream at the turn of the century, when news of Roosevelt's dinner with Booker T. Washington became known, all hell broke loose. For white supremacists, it was obscene that Roosevelt had invited a black man, and twice as obscene that Roosevelt's wife and daughter were present uh, at the dinner. The newspaper The Richmond Times wrote that the dinner was assigned, the president was okay with the idea that, I quote, that Negroes shall mingle freely with whites in the social circle, that white women may receive attentions from Negro men. If you think this is racist, this is nothing compared to Senator Ben Tillman of South Carolina, in one of those quotes that's so insanely racist that it really gives you pause. You know, when we think we talk about racism today, you look at what racism looked like a hundred years ago, and it's a whole other beast. In any case, these are the words of Ben Tillman, senator from South Carolina. The action of President Roosevelt in entertaining that nigger will necessitate our killing a thousand niggers in the South before they will learn their place again. This is just downright chilling. You know, this was a senator at the time. Crazy. Well, during these times, this was not just an isolated case of this Ben Tillman guy thinking along these lines. The governor of Mississippi and who later became senator, James Vardaman, had stated that it would be okay if every black man in his state was lynched in an effort to maintain white supremacy. And in another quote that's a good runner-up for crazy racist quotes the only effect of negro education is to spoil a good field hand and make an insolent cook so you know today you say oh you know a president invited an african-american to the white house or something like that it may not sound quite as revolutionary as it was in 1901 back then it was a whole other cultural context now, the invite in some way was a major turnaround for Roosevelt. His views on race had shifted quite dramatically over time. Now, in part one of this podcast series on Roosevelt, I promised that I would not dodge the issue of racism when discussing Roosevelt. So here we go. Growing up, Roosevelt had very much inherited the prejudice of his era. These were the cards he was given. You know, he grew up as an elitist from the upper class. He was very much schooled in white supremacist ideology. But over time, he made himself into something else. Fellow podcast Daryl Cooper, uh, whose Martyr Made podcast is great, except that I cannot pronounce that damn word. Martyr Made? 
in any case, there I'll come up with a new title or something. Awesome podcast, but I can't pronounce it in any case. Daryl suggested this quote by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, von Goethe to describe this aspect of Roosevelt's life. Truth belongs to the man, error to his age. This is why it has been said that while the misfortune of the aged caused his error, the force of his soul made him emerge from the error with glory. In other words, you know, none of us can transcend the cultural context in which we are born. But at the same time, we are not just these mindless robots where you can just download a cultural programming that you got at birth and will replicate it forever. Well, or rather, not everybody is a mindless robot that will replicate whatever they are taught when they are born. In Roosevelt's case, we're going to see how this transition takes place over his lifetime. Now, let's start with where he started. There's very little argument that American culture was incredibly racist at that time. Even after Theodore Roosevelt's time, the KKK was a mainstream organization with millions of members throughout the United States. Roosevelt's mother was from the South. She had grown up on a plantation with slaves. Most of Theodore Roosevelt's professors at Harvard believed on this idea of white supremacy and regularly lectured on it. For example, William McGee, the president of the National Geographic Society and also of the American Anthropological Association, wrote the following. He said, White and strong are synonymous terms. It is the duty of the strong man to subjugate lower nature and in all ways to enslave the world for the support of humanity and the increase of human intelligence. This is the kind of stuff that Roosevelt was taught day in and day out growing up. The American mainstream view of his days held that Anglo-Saxon culture had led to the progress of civilization more than anything else. There was no notion of cultural pluralism. The idea was that all cultures could be arranged hierarchically from the most civilized, which in the United States meant white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, with origins from Northern Europe, to the most savage. Any other culture was seen as inferior and still stuck in a state of savagery, or the way they defined it back then, slightly above savagery was barbarism. In a perfect version of the white man's burden ideology, the belief was that it was the duty of the Anglo-Saxons to bring the rest of the world out of barbarism and savagery, whether they liked it or not. If they liked it, great. If not, it only demonstrated how stupid they were and how much they needed Anglo-Saxon help, since they didn't even know what was good for them, like children refusing a bitter medicine. Roosevelt was schooled in this worldview and supported it early on. This was a slightly different racism from the racism embraced by those who hate all other ethnicities and believe them to be forever genetically inferior. This is not that kind of racism. This is a cultural racism. It's uh, the belief at play here is that people from other ethnicities need to copy the standards of Anglo-Saxon people so that they can become a darker-skinned version of them in which case they will be considered civilized. 
This notion of Anglo-Saxon superiority was tied to the notion of a special destiny of the Aryan race, which is the same exact myth that was cherished by the Nazis. Roosevelt's early historical writings were steeped into the Aryan myth. His writings were full of quotes like We were right in wresting from barbarism and adding to civilization the territory out of which we have made these beautiful states. Barbarism has no place in a civilized world. It is our duty toward the people living in barbarism to see that they are freed from their chains and we can free them only by destroying barbarism itself. And by barbarism he meant the culture of anyone but, but the Anglo-Saxons. And, you know, and the quote above is basically a perfect justification for colonizing anybody um, because that's how you properly civilize them. Now, since this was a mainstream belief, it's clearly understandable, you know, where Roosevelt was coming from is not justifiable, but it's definitely understandable. At least, you know, understanding context is different from justifying um, somebody's conclusions. Now, if things ended here, we could say that Roosevelt was a straight-up white supremacist, which is what people like Noam Chomsky argue about Roosevelt. I believe it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Roosevelt clearly began to change his views over time. It was a slow but constant process throughout his life. Now, despite saying some fairly awful things, such as the one quoted above, or some pretty awful things also about American Indians, he started standing against the corruption of the reservation systems, and he was against the government efforts to forcibly cut the hair of American Indians short. He later signed a bill banning school segregation in New York. He wrote articles against lynching. He had been secretly, because he would have been bad for his political career early on, he had been pro-civil rights and actually raised money to challenge some of the grandfather clause laws in the South. You know, none of these were the... Clearly, these were not the actions of your typical white supremacist. Now... And again, because I mentioned it is a mixed bag, he had said some stuff that's... Like, he had said, for example, that he believed it would take thousands of years for black people to match the intellectual power of white people. However, he made individual exceptions. Uh, again, you be the judge of what that means in the context of Roosevelt racism or not. He had stated also things like, I'm not, you know, that he wasn't happy with having a society where whites and blacks live together. But since it happened, and I quote Roosevelt's words now, the only wise and honorable and Christian thing to do is to treat each black man and each white man strictly on his merits as a man, giving him no more and no less than he shows himself worthy to have. So, along with this thinking, he actually felt that there were some African-Americans who were uh, extremely smart, extremely brilliant, so he appointed them to federal positions, which is something that previous administrations had not been too fond of doing, at least not on a regular basis. And over time, as time went by, he moved progressively more in defense of the poorer people in society, more in favor of civil rights, more in favor of women's rights. This reached a point that by the end of his life, the, there was an article 
uh, written by the NAACP that spoke of Roosevelt in the following terms. It said, A great man has died, and the whole world stands shocked and mourning. Humanity has lost its greatest exemplar of noble aims and single-minded devotion to the development of national welfare and glory. The youth of America had no finer inspiration toward which to strive, and with the passing of Theodore Roosevelt passes the world's greatest protagonist of lofty ideals and principles. Take him all in all, he was a man. Generous, impulsive, fearless, loving the public eye, but intent on achieving the public good. You know, this is the NAACP, again, not the kind of epitaph that you would give a white supremacist. And through his actions and words, Roosevelt approached himself to be something other than the stereotypical white supremacist that Chomsky would have you believe he was. Also, despite the rhetoric about bringing civilization to everybody and all of that stuff, Roosevelt's feelings about so-called civilization were actually pretty ambivalent. On one hand, you know, this belief in the superiority of Anglo-Saxon civilization clashed with his deep admiration for so-called primitive virtues. Roosevelt was one among quite a few people in the late 1800s and early 1900s who would sing the praises of Western civilization on one hand, only to lament the negative side effects of civilization. What am I talking about when I say the negative side effects of civilization? Well, this line of thinking went something like this. Civilization and education create polite, well-mannered citizens. But they also end up making men weak through too much comfort and an excess of emphasis on intellectual virtues. They overdevelop the mind while weakening the body. Ancient Rome in this was the classic example for this stuff. In the writings of lots of people, the idea about ancient Rome is that Rome started out as a nation lacking in refinement, but extremely talented in warfare. This primal strength led them to unparalleled success. But success, however, made Romans no longer want to work so hard, no longer risk their lives on the battlefield, but rather made them want to hire mercenaries to fight their wars so that they could sit back and enjoy some more laid-back lives. This process over centuries, this process made them weak. And the argument made by some historians is that it led to its collapse in the face of barbarians who were just as tough, uncultured and hungry as the ancestors of the Romans had been. It's kind of the classic parable of how the success of a civilization plants the seeds of its own destruction. You don't even have to think about history to see this stuff. You know, you see the same thing when you look at the career of many fighters. They get really good when they are hungry. By the time they become champions, they start getting distracted by success. They want to have a good life. They lose their focus. They start losing that edge, that hunger that pushed them to be the champion until eventually they get dethroned by hungry young challengers who want the very things that the champion already has. The creator of the character Conan, of Schwarzenegger's fame, 
Robert E. Howard, based his worldview on this archetype. Howard in many ways reminds me of what Roosevelt may have been, had Roosevelt been a novelist rather than a politician. Much like Roosevelt, Howard struggled with depression. He also had complicated attitudes about race and the relationship between civilization and barbarism. They also shared a similar cult of the strong individual, you know, individualism, strength. These were things that appealed to both of them. I have little doubt that had Roosevelt been around when the Conan novels were written, um, he would have uh, he would have loved them all. And as I mentioned in episode one, it's little surprise that the director of the Conan the Barbarian movie was um, a huge fan of Theodore Roosevelt. I very much see a connection in these worldviews. As a sickly, weak child growing up in a privileged environment, Roosevelt felt this archetype of the weak, smart aristocrat. He felt this very deeply. In his own words, over-sentimentality, over-softness, in fact, washiness and mushiness are the great dangers of this age and of these people. Unless we keep the barbarian virtues, gaining the civilized ones will be of little avail. Man, I love this quote. This is a hell of a good quote. Unless we keep the barbarian virtues, gaining the civilized ones will be of little avail. So, you know, for all the talks about the necessity to bring civilization to all and to constantly strive for progress, Roosevelt and quite a few people like him looked with a bit of envy at the manliness of those they consider savages. The author James Fenimore Cooper of The Last of the Mohicans fame toyed with the same dilemma and solved it by creating the character of the white savage, white and thereby well-mannered as good civilized people should be, but also savage, who can compete with the wildest American Indian warriors in savage manliness and fighting skills. Whether consciously or unconsciously, Roosevelt ended up trying to imitate this model. Now, let's make no mistake about it, the James Fenimore Cooper idea of there's still quite a bit of racism at play, but he's a more complicated kind. He's one, it's a considerably milder type of racism than the ones that were that was popular at the time. In any case, Roosevelt's own father had figured out that the antidote to his son's weakness and his being over-civilized was to, I quote, make the body savage through athletic training and exposure to nature. And this will become among two of Roosevelt's most enduring passions, his love for nature was largely due to the power that Roosevelt attributed to nature in shaping one's character. Roosevelt felt that nature was the place where people could shed the excesses of civilization and reforge themselves in a primal fire. And the same thing could be said about athletic training. Tough, manly sports, in his view, were a perfect way to counter the weakening effects of civilization. In his own words, In a perfectly peaceful and commercial civilization such as ours, there is always a danger of laying too little stress upon the more virile virtues, 
upon the virtues which go to make up a race of statesmen and soldiers, of pioneers and explorers. These are the very qualities which are fostered by vigorous, manly, outdoor sports, such as mountaineering, big game hunting, riding, shooting, rowing, football, and kindred games. Well, on this note, since we're touching on this already, let's switch gears a bit from this discussion about race, in which I feel that I kind of said what I wanted to say about the issue of race in Roosevelt's life, to another important one, to Roosevelt's passion for combat. I've already mentioned in the first episode, and I will keep mentioning here, um, that Roosevelt was insanely devoted to combat sports, uh, boxing and wrestling in particular. This passion for combat sports fits with his philosophy, with this philosophy of life that he nourished, which basically his philosophy was one that loved everything that was both dangerous and exciting. Even as president, he would convince everyone coming over to wrestle or spar with him. He was not a big believer in soft training. He loved dishing it out and taking serious beatings. Um, at one point, he took a particularly hard cross to his left eye. They left him blind in his left eye while he was president. So that tells you that, again, they weren't playing light sparring back then. This is not probably a good idea in terms of traumatic brain injuries and stuff like that. But still, that's, that's how they train. After this injury, since he couldn't do boxing anymore, he spent even more time wrestling and jumped at the chance to be among the first Westerners to learn Judo and Jiu-Jitsu. He had heard of Judo, and he was a bit in love with the romanticism of Japan's samurai culture. So he wrote letters to Japan asking if there would be any teacher who would be willing to come from Japan to teach him. The Kodokan, the main school where Judo originated, they sent him Yoshiaki Yamashita, who was the first man ever to earn a tenth dan in Judo, the highest possible ranking that one can achieve. So Roosevelt set up the tatami, the, um, the Judo mats, in the basement of the White House, and started learning. His love for judo transcended nationalism. Um, he had asked, one occasion, he had asked some young American athletes who were visiting if, um, if they knew anything about judo and jiu-jitsu. And these guys clearly said no, because hardly anyone in the US knew anything about judo and jiu-jitsu at, at the turn of the century. But Roosevelt at that point just jumped up and said, you must promise me to learn that without delay. You're so good in other athletics that you must add jiu-jitsu to your other accomplishments. Every American athlete ought to understand the Japanese system thoroughly. And to prove this point of how much he believed in the strengths of judo and jiu-jitsu, later in his presidency, in 1905, he set up a match between his American wrestling instructor and his Japanese jiu-jitsu teacher. And while the American wrestler was able to take the jiu-jitsu teacher down, he was kind of clueless when it came to when they hit the floor, all the submissions that characterized the jiu-jitsu game. Um, he got slaughtered by, um, by Roosevelt's Japanese teacher. Around this time, Roosevelt trained about three times a week. Um, some sources suggest that he was the first American to ever earn a brown belt in judo while he was president. 
uh, among his judo training partner were his sons, his private secretary, um, the secretary of war, William Howard Taft, who will later become president, uh, the secretary of interior, Gifford Pinchot, and the legend has it that once during a boring diplomatic dinner, Roosevelt grabbed a Swiss minister and threw him across the room with a judo technique, and he thought he was great fun. Again, I don't think the Swiss minister thought as much, but still. And any time he was about to give a speech, which is something he did a lot, he would always try to get himself in the right frame of mind by shadowboxing ahead of his speeches. This taste for combat, for rough physical training and Spartan life, went hand-in-hand with Roosevelt's philosophy of what he later termed the strenuous life. What was the strenuous life? The strenuous life was a philosophy made of equal parts muscles, sweat, willpower and perseverance. Originally, when I began looking into Theodore Roosevelt, all I wanted was to do a podcast on his ideas on the strenuous life. Didn't really care much about the whole political side to Roosevelt's life. Now, eventually, I became interested in everything else. But before we continue in the narration of the events characterizing the Roosevelt presidency, indulge me a little more while I explore this key aspect of Roosevelt's personality and of his philosophy. The strenuous life was the opposite of the comfortable, cozy life that, in his views, produced soft, weak men. It was a life based on hard work, an iron wheel created by taking on increasingly more difficult challenges. It was a a life that was about learning to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. It was about forging body and mind in the fire of battle. Roosevelt explained this in a speech that he gave when he was governor of New York in 1899. I'll quote from it. I wish to preach, not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success which comes not to the men who desire mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil, and who out of this wins the splendid ultimate triumph. In a related quote, he also says, We admire the man who embodies victorious effort, the man who never wrongs his neighbor, who is prompt to help a friend, but who has those virile qualities necessary to win in the stern strife of actual life. It is hard to fail, but it's worse never to have tried to succeed. In this life, we get nothing save by effort. That tells you a lot about his personality, about his character, about his philosophy, about what made him tick. In another speech delivered in Paris in 1910, he hammered on the same concept. He said, the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer, a cynical habit of thought and speech, 
a readiness to criticize work, which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness, which will not accept contact with life's realities. All these are mark, not of superiority, but of weakness. Roosevelt's philosophy, in other words, was based on action and on taking great risks. Okay, I'll shut up for now about this side of Roosevelt's which fascinates me to no end. And I'll get back to the stuff one normally discusses when talking about the lives of presidents, specifically their politics. This just mentioned tendency to take risks and stay away from easy, comfortable choices showed up in his politics as well. Uh, we saw it in his inviting Booker P. Washington to dinner despite the political backlash. But if you think that was controversial, be warned that that was just a warm-up for the kind of controversies that Roosevelt will get into during his presidencies. In many ways, he had anything but an easy job ahead of him. Democrats were against him, but the reality was that also most Republicans were against him. They were with the party bosses, with the establishment of the party, and they were usually considerably more conservative than he was. Roosevelt had few friends and plenty of enemies in politics. So he was big on making the office of the president more powerful than he was, in order to use this power to smash political opposition trying to block his visions from becoming reality. Uh, he built a cabinet of people who were super devoted to him. I mean, in that sense, the reality is that Roosevelt didn't really want to be president. Roosevelt wanted to be emperor, wanted to have... Uh, that's why people who don't like this... Uh, um, some people criticize this side of Roosevelt as being borderline dictatorial. And you can see why, because clearly he was a big believer in making the presidency as powerful as one could possibly get away with. One area, or rather one of several areas in which Roosevelt was at odds with many people in his own parties, had to do with the relationship with big business. Many Republicans have been steadily driving the party away from the idealism of previous generations and toward becoming the party of big business. Um, it would have been logical for Roosevelt to fit in with them and side with the captains of industry since he belonged to the aristocracy. But he didn't. And this is something that they would never forgive him for. They considered him a class traitor. The captains of industry were the most powerful men in America. J.P. Morgan, for example, had more control over the nation's economy than the government itself. And J.P. Morgan, though, was not exactly one to worry about the effects on the economy at large of his dealings. He was out for one thing and one thing only, which was J.P. Morgan. He wanted, he was about, you know, making profit, and if it ends up working for somebody else, great, but that's really not, none of my concern. Morgan openly stated, I quote, I owe the public nothing. This clash with Roosevelt ideals, because Roosevelt nourished a more romantic view of the elite, leading for the public good. So he was disgusted with what he considered to be Morgan's selfishness. So Roosevelt decided to take him on. He believed that only government could stop the excesses of capitalism, 
he was not against capitalism in itself, he was against the excesses of capitalism. Morgan had created plenty of monopolies and had bought plenty of politicians. Roosevelt decided to challenge this. He felt that monopolies were bad because they ended up determining prices and working conditions without any challenge since there would be no alternatives. Roosevelt specifically didn't like the quasi-monopoly that Morgan was seeking in the railroad business. He also didn't like the fact that he had bought mines and part of the timber industry and basically ended up being the employer of millions of people and, in not too many words, controlling the national economy. Feeling that this kind of thing would lead to poor safety standards, poor wages, etc., Roosevelt sued one of J.P. Morgan's companies uh, that was seeking to gain a monopoly over the railroads. This was the first time that a U.S. president had stood in such direct opposition against big business. The stock market dropped as finance leaders freaked out, accusing him of being un-American. There were big fights in the Senate over this, and on a daily basis, uh, visitors were coming to the White House trying to convince Roosevelt to back down on this. The way Roosevelt saw it, there was no major corporation when the Constitution was written. So he felt, here we are setting precedent, we don't have a precedent to fall back on. His view was that if the Constitution didn't explicitly prohibit government to regulate the economy, then it was okay to do it. Um, this is in direct opposition to what Jefferson had believed, because uh, Jefferson was more along the lines of uh, the government can do only what is in the Constitution, whereas Roosevelt felt that it could do anything that was not explicitly prohibited by the Constitution. The Supreme Court eventually agreed with Roosevelt and stopped Morgan's proposed merger with other railroads. In case there were doubts that perhaps this was a one-off, just Roosevelt being personally bugged with Morgan, but that he could still be brought back to a more pro-business approach, Roosevelt actually doubled down with another choice that was highly unpopular among the economic elites. I repeat, up until this point, in just about every single labor capital conflict, the government had only intervened to send police as muscle against labor and to protect capital. Government was, and in many ways you can make the argument it still is to this day, is there to protect big business, to keep their profits running high. The notion that the government is neutral in a dispute between workers and industry tend to be not a common one. In this case, here is what happened. In 1902, uh, United Mine Workers Union called for a strike due to the atrocious working conditions among coal miners. Many of these guys suffer from asthma, heart problems, regular deaths on the job, very long working hours, children as young as 80 years old being allowed to work for about $6 a month, And United Work Mine Workers Union was saying these are impossible conditions, you know, the, the process needs to be improved here. The owners of the mines didn't really care. Their idea was like, well, just get another job done if that's how you feel. 
winter was coming, as Game of Thrones would say, and people needed coal to last through the cold. Roosevelt was not a big fan of unions, but he also was not a big fan of uh, wealthy people screwing over everyone else. So he called both sides to the White House, and he flat out told them, you know, I want you to find a compromise. I don't want the strike to go on, but the solution is not just to pretend the problem is not there, I want you to fix the problem so that the strike can be called off. The cold barons said that they don't even think about it. They did not want to be even meeting with United Mine Worker representatives. They consider them criminals and they would not compromise. Roosevelt now really doesn't know what to do because, you know, he basically invited them to work a deal together. He's been polite about it and he's meeting with that solid big no back his way. But panicking was not in his vocabulary, so he quickly chose a course of action. He actually decided to apply pressure to the bosses. He came back, met with them, and said, either you find a compromise that can work for the workers and for you, or if you refuse, I'm going to nationalize the mines, I'm going to send the army to take over the mines, take them away from you, and make them be run by the government. The coal barons freaked out. They said, you can't do that. You have no constitutional authority to do that. And Roosevelt looked them straight in the eyes and said, I know I don't. In other words, I don't care specifically what I can and cannot do. I'm still going to do what I believe is right. Which again, this is what people point to when saying Roosevelt was flirting with dictatorship here. But at the same time, you can see, you know, why was he feeling this way? He, he basically said, look, it's my duty to help American people. And this duty overrides any constitutional authority that I may or may not have to fix the situation. In one case, a conservative congressman stepped up to him, criticizing him heavily over him, and Roosevelt picked him up by his lapels, basically telling him, don't yell at me. In a famous quote, Roosevelt stated, the Constitution was made for the people, and not the people for the Constitution. So, in this tug-of-war, Roosevelt wins. The coal barons accept that you know, the odds are bad for them in this scenario if Roosevelt they don't think that calling Roosevelt's bluff would be a good idea for them, so they decide to negotiate. They still refuse to recognize the union, but they agreed to abide by the rulings of a mediation board as long as there were no labor representatives there. Roosevelt said, sure, no labor representatives, no problem, but he appointed a certain E.E. E. Clark from the Brotherhood of Railway Conductors, he just switched his title and decided he wasn't a representative of labor, he was there as a sociologist. Which I guess is Roosevelt being funnier. Eventually, after some negotiations, they agreed to limit the workday to nine hours a day and to give a 10% raise to all the workers. So the strike ended, and this was the case in which Roosevelt was the first president to successfully mediate a labor dispute. 
It should be pretty obvious based on this that Roosevelt had no qualms about flexing his presidential muscles to get what he wanted done. And he cared very little for what other politicians thought. For example, Roosevelt was also unusual for considering the time when he was uh, when when he lived. He was very unusual for his concern for environmental preservation. In 1903, while he was president, he disappeared off for a few days, going with John Muir to Yosemite, spending some days with him exploring Yosemite. And, you know, these guys are not traveling in high comfort. They slept under the stars among the sequoias. They camped outdoors under heavy snow. Can you imagine an American president doing that now? That that would be just I can't hyper you know imagine yeah Obama or Trump or any of these guys being camping in heavy snow with no security just quite wild and by the way this is not because back then things were so much safer because they really weren't you know if you look at actually presidents being shot and assassinated that happened a whole lot more at that time than uh, than today. Here is a Roosevelt quote about his experience in Yosemite. He said, There can be nothing in the world more beautiful than the Yosemite. The groves of the giant sequoias. Our people should see to it that they are preserved for their children and their children's children forever, with their majestic beauty, all unmarred. To be clear, Roosevelt liked hunting, but he also wanted animal preservation. He was a believer in responsible hunting. After the Yosemite trip, Roosevelt flexed this presidential muscle, as I was mentioning, to gain some protection for some of the lands in the area. Most people in Congress could not care less about it. They saw environmental preservation as an obstacle to making money. You know, this in some ways is the same monstrously stupid, short-sighted approach that characterizes this discussion sometime even to this day. It's fun in a way, because this should not even be a political thing, right? Liberals, conservative, religious people, atheists, doesn't even matter where you stand on these issues. Nobody likes to have poison in their water or in the air they breathe, right? So it shouldn't even be a political issue. It should be something that everybody could agree on making sure that the conditions that make life possible are preserved for everybody. But things sadly are not that easy. And in this case, short-term profit often stands in the way of a cohesive policy that would work for everybody. In one instance, for example, a congressman replied to Roosevelt's appeal to save nature for posterity by saying... And I'm not making this up, this is an actual quote, he replied, what has posterity ever done for me? This was their mindset. Roosevelt didn't care that his ideas were unconventional and he was in the minority, so he regularly went to war against Congress over environmental issues. Whatever Roosevelt got done in terms of environmental protection, he got it done by fighting. He bypassed Congress and used executive orders to create wildlife refuges. At a time when the bison was close to extinction, Roosevelt pushed for efforts to repopulate it. He did, in, in this sense, he did more than any other president to protect the wilderness. 
when Congress refused to make Grand Canyon a national park, uh, Roosevelt used his own special power to make it a national monument in spite of them. He was very aggressive when he came to using his office for what he believed to be right, and he was similarly very aggressive when it came to foreign policy. For example, he wanted a canal that would connect the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. And if you look at a map of North, Central and South America, obviously the one spot where it makes the most sense to dig a canal to connect in the two oceans is where the continent is at its thinnest, and that would be modern-day Panama. Now, Panama at this time was under the control of Colombia, was not an independent nation. And the government of Colombia refused Roosevelt's offer to buy the land uh, to build a canal. They wanted way more money than Roosevelt would offer. But he believed that the building the canal would be good for all. So he was like, I'm going to charge ahead anyway. Now, there was an independence movement in Panama. And... Uh, he basically worked out a deal with the rebels saying that if he would give them help to gain independence, then the rebels in return would sell them that land, would allow the construction of the Panama Canal for actually an even lower price than Colombia was considering. Americans in the past had helped squash previous rebellions, but in this case Roosevelt supported this one. So the rebels were able to proclaim independence with the American Navy to protect them. And there wasn't really much that Colombia could do about this. When quite uh, some politicians started criticizing Roosevelt for what they considered an imperialist position, Roosevelt responded by referring to them as, I quote, a small bunch of shrill eunuchs. Isn't that awesome? A small bunch of shrill eunuchs. I think I'm going to start using this line for anyone who criticizes me. That's just brilliant. In any case, the United States immediately recognized the Republic of Panama. And as a result, Roosevelt became the first president to leave the country while in office in order to go see the work being done on the canal. Now, by the time 1904 rolls around, the election of 1904 is up. And conservative Republicans hate Roosevelt. They resent that he is their president. Even some of his own friends thought that he was too radical. Henry Cabot Lodge, for example, you know, Lodge took Roosevelt into appointing to the Supreme Court Oliver Wendell Holmes, who later went against Roosevelt in some of his rulings and, and against particularly regarding labor. You know, Lodge, despite being a good friend of Roosevelt, they disagreed on immigration, they had disagreed about idea of legislating the purity of food and medicine in the United States. Lodge didn't like immigrants, didn't like the poor. Despite this, Lodge would help Roosevelt whenever he could. In one instance, when uh, Roosevelt's oldest son, Ted, got in trouble with the law, Lodge was there to help. You know, what had happened was that um, some of Ted's friends had too much to drink. They got into a fight with the policeman, so the cops charged them and they ended up beating Ted up. They wanted to hold him because uh, he didn't give up his friend's name and he had resisted arrest. But Lodge uses considerable political influence to help uh, 
get Ted out of legal troubles. Despite so few people sharing his views about the big wings in his party, hell, despite even having few people sharing his view among some of his own friends, Roosevelt was ridiculously popular. Uh, he was not popular among politicians, he was popular among people. So most of the politicians in his party could not openly oppose him, at least they could not contest his nomination. So in the 1904 election, Roosevelt won easily. And just as he was celebrating this victory, he made the biggest mistake of his political life. He announced that he would not run for another term when this term was up. Now, people back then could run for multiple terms. It just had been customary to serve two terms. And technically speaking, Roosevelt hadn't really even served two terms because his first term, he was actually just finishing McKinley's term. Um, 1904 is when he won the election, so some people could argue that that was actually Roosevelt's first term, even though really it wasn't. But even then, you know, he could have run three, four, it didn't really matter because there were no term limits on the presidency. It had been customary to just serve two, but it wasn't a requirement. And this was a serious mistake on Roosevelt's part, because Roosevelt lived to rule. You know, having worked so hard to get power, only to willingly give it up was not his style. I'm sure it sounded good in his head when he said it, that he would not seek another term. But that's because he really hadn't thought it through. He had been too impulsive. And the moment he let it out, he quickly ended up regretting it. But there really wasn't much he could do about it after publicly announcing it. Despite having shot himself in the foot, Roosevelt was going to try to keep his aggressive style in the second term as well, as usual making enemies even within his own party. Among the many, many issues that Roosevelt got into, the one that he tackled that was interesting to say the least, was the destiny of the quintessential American game of football. There's a very decent chance that football, as it is played today in the US, would not exist if it weren't for Roosevelt. Back then, football was a rough sport, and even, or rather, let me rephrase, because football is a rough sport still now, it was an even rougher sport. Several players died on the field almost every year, more than usual in 1905. So techniques like eye gouging, stomping on fallen players were the norm. Uh, many people saw this as some kind of gladiatorial combat, which incidentally happened to involve a ball. There was no quarterback at the time, no forward pass, no end zone reception was a little more rugby-like than football-like as we know it today. But the reality was that the violence that characterized the game led quite a few people to call to ban it. They wanted to outlaw football. Among those wanting to stamp football out of American life was the president of Harvard, Charles William Elliott. Roosevelt could not disagree more on this. He saw football as a tool to turn boys into men. Back during the Spanish-American War in 1898, he had wanted football guys to join the Rough Riders because they had a reputation for bravery. His own son, Ted, played football at Harvard. He was on the Harvard team. 
and opponents would regularly beat the hell out of him in one occasion just breaking his nose precisely because he was the son of the president. In any case, to avoid the ban, Roosevelt invited the coaches from the three top football universities, which back then were Harvard, Yale and Princeton, to the White House to meet in the White House in October of 1905. He told them, I'm not going to tell you what to do, you guys know best, but figure out how to fix the problem to avoid a ban on the sport. So these guys got together and started changing the rules of the game. They, would, uh, they decided they would penalize personal fouls more. Um, they would try to open up the game a little more, kind of less of the uh, clash in the middle. So they introduced the forward pass. Walter Camp, the coach from Yale, opposed this idea because he liked the feel of rugby, but was outvoted. So this guy ended up creating these new rules to make the game safer and basically begin what will turn into the NCAA. So was there something that Roosevelt didn't get involved in? I mean, environment, labor, Panama Canal, football. It's like he's all over the place. You know, he couldn't... And among the many things that he got into, another one that gave him fame during his second terms had to do with increased government regulation of uh, corporations. Specifically, well, let's get into the specifics of these issues. Some writers, among them Upton Sinclair, who wrote a famous book entitled The Jungle, had exposed the highly corrupt, unsafe practices of big business when it came to things like selling of spoiled meat or dangerous ingredients in medicine, and there really was no regulation to speak of. So companies were able to sell products that were potentially harmful and do so legally. There really was nothing that the government could do about it. Now, some people were tend to emphasize the idea of the free market. They say, well, then those companies would get a bad reputation and people would stop buying from there. Well, that's really not the way it works in reality. The way it works in reality is that they made their money and if things went badly, well, who cares? They made their money and they would start another company that would do the exact same thing. So Roosevelt decided he would tackle this issue by pushing for increased regulation of corporations. Sinclair's book, The Jungle, had not given Roosevelt the idea of regulating the meat industry, but had given publicity to something that Roosevelt wanted done anyway, so it helped him. So in 1906, Roosevelt pushed for the Meat Inspection Act, which in particular targeted dangerous chemicals that were used for meat preservation, so that your meat doesn't spoil, but of course you're also consuming a bunch of poison in the process. Also in 1906, he pushed through the Pure Food and Drug Act, which in this case targeted all the possibly dangerous ingredients found in medicine and forcing companies selling any kind of medicine to disclose all of the ingredients um, that were found within. Now, among Republicans, there was a strong division between a conservative pro-big business faction that hated Roosevelt and hated regulation, and a progressive branch of the party that supported Roosevelt and the idea of regulation. 
right here is the beginning of the switch in the political philosophies of the two main American parties. Up until this point, Republicans have been urban for strong federal government, um, tended to be considerably more open to issues like uh, the rights of ethnic minorities and so on, while Democrats have been more rural for state rights, not so friendly to ethnic minorities. But now the change began, where slowly they start flipping, where Democrats basically end up embracing what used to be Republican positions and Republicans end up embracing what were used to be Democratic positions. Roosevelt's opponents in the Republican Party wanted to stir their party in the direction of less government in economic matters, and they were big on defending corporate interests. This is where the fracture begins. At this time, the Republican Party could have still gone another route, which was what Roosevelt was championing, a more politically progressive route. But this conflict is the beginning of the Republican Party flipping attitudes. In one case, in regards to the fact that Roosevelt was not exactly a big fan of uh, corporations, and, you know, corporate interests were used back then, and I'm using back then with a smile on my face because it's not that today anything has changed, really. But back then, corporate interests were usually able to buy politicians of all persuasions, so that regardless of who got elected, they would get somebody who owed them favors and would legislate accordingly. And business interests were not too happy to discover that Roosevelt was not so easy to buy. You know, they would contribute to his political campaign and he would say, sure, thanks for the money. But then he didn't really feel obliged to um, return the favor when he was in office. He felt like, you know, you want to give me my money because you like me, great, but do you think that your money is going to buy my political loyalty to you? You're dreaming. That's not what's going to happen. So in one occasion in frustration, there was somebody from a big businessman who had contributed to the Roosevelt campaign, was very frustrated with what Roosevelt was doing, and he commented, I quote, we bought the son of a bitch, but then he didn't stay bought. You know, in other words, they contributed money to Roosevelt election, and yet Roosevelt still ended up doing what he wanted. So during his second terms as well, Roosevelt went to war against many, many, many people in Congress on this effort of passing regulations. Conservative Congress was able to shut down some of his attempts at progressive reforms. For example, Roosevelt had wanted to pass a law requiring that no job can ask you to work more than eight hours a day. Um, Conservative Congress shut him down. Roosevelt was not only frustrated with conservatives, he was also frustrated with progressives who were unwilling to compromise to get the legislation through. He felt like it doesn't have to be the ideal legislation, but if we can actually get it done, it's better than holding on to some very ideal position that we can never get through Congress. So he was also bugged with radical reformers. And he actually saw his own reforms as an alternative to revolution. 
So when Roosevelt found himself frustrated with these never-ending political battles with Congress, he often found relief beating up his aid uh, in a boxing match, or he would love to just go riding in the middle of a blizzard, or in a gesture that would have made Wim Hof proud, he would jump naked in the frozen waters of the Potomac River in winter. Again, and if we needed more proof that Roosevelt was a rather eccentric guy, there you go. He played a game with his chief of staff, Leonard Wood. This is what they did. They would wrap it themselves with pillows. Why would they do that? Because then they would grab some sticks and proceed to beat the living hell out of each other with them. Despite all the pillows wrapped around them, they would walk away with gigantic bruises. This reminds me, there's a... There's a martial art group known as the Dog Brothers, who uh, they, some of their writings, they describe themselves, I quote, as smelly psychopaths with sticks. And their motto, which I find hilarious, is higher consciousness through harder contact. Well, these guys are a modern group of people who study Filipino martial arts, and their approach is different because they believe in full contact sparring with sticks with minimal protection. I think it's safe to say that Roosevelt would have probably loved them. In any case, back to the environmental question, which is one of the big ones that continue to be at the forefront of what Roosevelt cares about. The fight over environmental preservation continued in his second term. Now, again, take the word... He he obviously was an environmentalist, but take the word environmentalist with a grain of salt here. In modern usage, we don't picture environmentalists as enthusiastically hunting animals in mass quantities. Contrary to modern stereotypes, Roosevelt saw no contradiction between being a hunter and an environmentalist. There's one story about his hunting that led to the shaping of an enduring part of American culture. During a hunting expedition in Mississippi in 1902, they were not having much success. So eventually some guides found the bear, they wounded him and tied him up so that Roosevelt could walk up and shoot it and take a picture. But Roosevelt was disgusted. He said, what, what is this? This is not hunting. You know, I'm not here to for a photo hop. You know, I'm not going to shoot a wounded bear that you guys have. No, that's, I'm not going to do it. That's just not the way I see hunting. As a result of this story becoming well-known, a certain Morris Mitchton, who was a candy shop owner in New York, decided to put together two stuffed toy bears that had been sewn together by his wife and started calling them teddy bears in honor of Roosevelt refusing to shoot this wounded bear in this act of uh, hunting sportsmanship, I guess. So he started using this term teddy bear, and very quickly, they, these two bears were sold, and more were created and more were sold, until before you know it, the very idea of the teddy bear becomes a classic cornerstone of American culture. It's like just about every other kid in the U.S. at some point had the quote-unquote teddy bear. That's where it gets his name. Teddy was from Theodore Roosevelt and from this particular hunting incident. 
Now, preservation of nature, as usual, was high up on his priority list, and he was quite mad with what he considered some really bad habits on the part of the American public when it came to environmental destruction. In his own words, he said, Perhaps the chief offender among civilized nations... Uh, I'm sorry, let me rephrase this. this. He's referring to the United States, and he says that the United States is, I quote, perhaps the chief offender among civilized nations in permitting the destruction and pollution of nature. And in another quote is stated, in the United States we turn our rivers and streams into sewers and dumping grounds. We pollute the air, we destroy forests, and exterminate fish, birds, and mammals. Again, he was a hunter, but he liked nature. He wanted to actually be able to keep it. And he believed that the free market led to excessive hunting that would lead to destruction of nature. Congress, as I mentioned earlier, did not share his enthusiasm for environmental preservation and did not want to set land aside what they wanted instead was to let the industries develop whatever they wanted with no concern for preservation. Roosevelt counter-argued to this that this approach would destroy American natural beauty, so he pushed to create national parks whenever he could, bird sanctuaries, to counter the wipeout of literally millions of birds being hunted into extinction at this time, he signed an act to protect prehistoric ruins and objects of uh, scientific interest. He was in love with nature, and so he was going to fight no matter what over this. He basically single-handedly doubled the number of national parks, created the Forest Service, which at least the way it was intended back then was for preservation, not to become the slave uh, the logging industries that would happen at some other point in American history. He did more to conserve the wilderness than any other president. In 1907, Congress got tired of Roosevelt trying to use his own special presidential power to bypass them, so they passed a bill stripping the president of the power to designate national forests. This was a move designed to help developers and to go against environmental preservation. Roosevelt, not being one to take a loss laying down, he realized there was nothing he could do to stop this bill, but what he could do was to step in before the bill could become law. And so he created millions of acres of national forest while he still had this power. Opponents in Congress were furious, but there really was nothing they could do about it. This is an interesting example. Like you hear, for example, many people speak of the Obama presidency. Some people were frust frustrated with Obama because they felt that he would try to negotiate with the Republican Congress. And when the Republican Congress told them no on time and time again on just about every issue, Obama really didn't flex his muscle as much as some of the supporters of some of these ideas would have liked. On a different note, in 1905, Roosevelt sent his Secretary of War and future President William Howard Taft to Japan on a diplomatic mission. 
and he also sent his first daughter from his first marriage, Alice, along with him. Let's talk about Alice a little bit. Alice was 21 years old and was a true celebrity. She had a wild personality and the media gave her the kind of attention the way that today they would give Kim Kardashian attention. Alice was such an intense, unique individual that I almost feel like she deserves a podcast all to herself. But for lack of a whole episode, let's pause for a minute here uh, the narration of the diplomatic mission to discuss Alice's life a little bit. Her position in the family had always been weird. She was only two days old when her mom and grandmother had died. Considering that Theodore Roosevelt's primary way to deal with grief was denial, and that he had tried to forget everything possible about those days, this placed his relationship with his daughter under a bit of strain. This was made worse when he remarried and had five more kids with his new wife. Alice lived with them, but always felt like an outcast. She felt like she wasn't as loved as the other kids. Uh, This is something that Alice stated, I quote from her words. She said, My father didn't want me to be a guilty burden on my stepmother. He obviously felt guilty about it, otherwise he would have said at least once that I had another parent. The curious thing is that he never seemed to realize that I was perfectly aware of it and developing a resentment. He never said her name, or that I even had a different mother. He just never mentioned her to me. He never mentioned her to anyone. He never referred to her again. And in another entry in her diary, she states a one-liner that's really heavy, because she said, Father doesn't care for me. So clearly there's this issue of she felt unloved. She had also felt betrayed that when she was an infant he had gone to the Dakotas rather than focusing on taking care of her. She was feeling overlooked compared to all the other kids, so Alice did what can be expected. She kind of ended up embodying the perfect stereotype of the rebellious teenager acting out to get her father's attention through just being wild. She enjoyed rebelling. She did everything that a woman was not supposed to do. She used makeup, she smoked in public, she bet on horse races, she played poker, she flirted with men and hang out with them with no chaperone. Uh, later she would bring booze to dry dinner parties. She raced their car, carried a snake wrapped around her neck. On one occasion when they... Um, when they told her that she was not allowed to smoke inside the house, she climbed the house and went to the top of the roof to smoke there. You get the picture, right? A friend of the family described her as, I quote, a young wild animal that had been put into good clothes. The media loved her because she was a walking scandal. They nicknamed her Princess Alice and followed her everywhere. It was said that if Roosevelt wanted to know what she was up to, all he had to do was read the newspapers. He was quite frustrated in his efforts to discipline her. In one occasion he stated, I can be president of the United States, or I can attend to Alice. 
but I can't do both. As I hinted, she also had a troubled relationship with her stepmom. Even though later Alice would write in fairly good terms about Edith, some degree of conflict between them was inevitable. Edith was the prototype of the good housewife. In her view, a lady should never be in the news, or rather should only be in the news when she was born, when she married and when she died. She was very proper and she was super Christian. Alice, on the other hand, was making the news daily for her highly improper behavior and loved to mock her parents' Christianity. She referred to that as voodoo and proudly proclaimed that she was a pagan. She was wild and proud to be. One of her famous lines was, If you haven't got anything nice to say about anybody, come sit next to me. This was the lady who went along on this delicate diplomatic mission with Taft to Asia. Alice managed to make the news before even reaching the ship destined to take them across the Pacific. On July 4, 1905, she had gone to the rear of the train and used her pistol to shoot at telegraph poles while heading down the rails. She was 21 years old at this time. She arrived in San Francisco, and in early July 1905, they left the port to head out. During a quick stop to Hawaii, she had uh, scandalized everybody by going in a swimming suit. Now, a swimming suit back then was kind of the equivalent of a burqa, basically, because it was high up on the neck, long sleeves with black stocking and baiting shoes and hair under a cap. I mean, you basically showed nothing, right? But Taft still thought that it showed too much skin and it was scandalous. Alice would do this thing where she would jump into the pool with her clothes on. She did all this thing. In any case, by the end of the month, they arrived in Yokohama, Japan. They got a big welcome, thousands of Japanese people waving Japanese and American flags. She had a chance to dine with the emperor. They attended a sumo match. And they continued the tour by going through China, well, all of Japan and China and Korea. In China, she met the empress. And Alice promptly decided that was a good time to get royally drunk. She received gifts at every turn. And the American consul general was horrified by Alice and some of her friends and their behavior. During the course of the of this diplomatic trip, she managed to get into a torrid affair with a 34-year-old congressman, Nicholas Longworth of Ohio. Later, when she explained their attraction to older men, Alice said, I really didn't have many friends of my own age when I was young. The ones of my own age were frightfully nice and proper and respectable, but they were not terribly interesting. I always liked older men. A father complex coming out, presumably. Longworth drank a lot, was a gambler, patronized plenty of prostitutes, was precisely the kind of bad boy that... Alice liked. Taft was supposed to be the chaperone in this, but he often lost sight of Alice and was left wondering what she was doing in some corner of the ship. 
when at one point he pressed her saying, are you engaged to Longworth? Alice replied in less than reassuring fashion, more or less, Mr. Secretary, more or less. I can picture Taft being desperate here. Compared to dealing with Alice, the easy part of this trip was negotiating a secret meeting with Japanese officials. Roosevelt had given them his blessing on them controlling Korea. During the war with Russia, Japan had placed troops in Korea and started to take over. If, uh, in exchange for Roosevelt closing an eye regarding Japan's invasion of Korea, uh, the Japanese would formally renounce any intent to take over the Philippines. Now, some people argue that negotiating a deal like this with a foreign country without Senate approval was not the most constitutional thing in the world. But we've already established that Roosevelt didn't really care much for that. Speaking of the Russian-Japanese war, Roosevelt invited both sides to negotiate peace terms. His euphoric personality seemed very poorly suited for diplomacy. And in fact, as he wrote in private letters, during the negotiations he secretly fantasized about slamming together the heads of the Russian and Japanese diplomats, but he managed to restrain himself and was surprisingly effective as a diplomat. Roosevelt was friendly to the Japanese and was very much into Japan's history and culture. Plus, he had this big uh, romantic admiration for their samurai heritage. But despite liking Japan much more than he liked Russia, he acted in a fairly neutral way. His goal was to maintain a balance of power between the two, which would in turn help the US position in Asia. He did not want either side to win too strongly. And it actually worked out. Um, by the time negotiations were done, the Japanese negotiator gave Roosevelt a katana, you know, the classic samurai sword as a gift. But not everyone in Japan was equally pleased. Japan had wanted cash indemnity from Russia, and Roosevelt had told them to forget it. Quite a few riots broke out in Japan because of this. Mobs in Tokyo burned down churches, threw rocks at Americans, the riots actually resulted in quite a few dead and hundreds wounded. By the time Alice, on the way back from this uh, diplomatic trip, did a second stop in Japan, she said, I was told to, to say I was English if anyone asked my nationality. I've never seen such a more complete change. Americans were about as unpopular as they'd been popular before. Now, regardless of not pleasing everyone, for his efforts, Roosevelt became the first American to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Which, think about the irony. I mean, in some odd way, you know, Roosevelt was so fond of warfare, as we have seen. He win his winning Nobel Peace Prize is kind of funny. But I guess it's fitting, considering that Roosevelt had openly advocated the mixing of warrior virtues and diplomatic tact when he repeatedly adopted as a motto the sentence speak softly and carry a big stick. If many consider these diplomatic efforts a high point of his foreign policy, others are quick to point to the Philippines as one of his low points. 
The Philippines are one of those places where Roosevelt fantasies clash with reality. His experience in the Spanish-American War had been everything he dreamed war to be. Heroic, romantic, noble, characterized by bravery. The Filipino-American War, on the other hand, had been nasty, ugly, morally confusing. Now, what was the Filipino-American War? A few words are in order, since we have barely mentioned it so far. In addition to kicking out the Spaniards from Puerto Rico and Cuba, the Spanish-American War had also seen U.S. troops intervene in the Philippines. Initially, many Filipinos had been glad to receive American help. But things quickly turned sour when it became clear that the American government had not helped the Filipinos to gain independence just out of the goodness of their heart. They had been simply kicking out Spain in order to take its place as the Philippines' new colonial master. So this was a little more difficult to spin this as a heroic war of liberation, when the people you are supposedly liberating hate your guts because they want independence and you are not willing to give it to them. Roosevelt had supported a very paternalistic idea in regards to foreign policy in the Philippines. The idea was that American imperialism was for their own good. In Roosevelt's own words, it is our duty toward the people living in barbarism to see that they are freed from their chains, and we can free them only by destroying barbarism itself. This was part of a quote that I mentioned earlier, but I should mention in this case is applied to the Philippines. And the quote continues, the missionary, the merchant, and the soldier may each have to play a part in this destruction and in the consequent uplifting of the people. The fact that the Filipinos did not see themselves as barbarians in need to be saved mattered little to people supporting this imperialistic view. As a result of this, in the following years, tens of thousands of Filipinos, some sources suggest possibly a quarter of a million, were killed as American troops trying to put down any kind of resistance. Granted, this was not all on Roosevelt since the war had started, primarily under McKinley, but many point to Roosevelt's support for this policy as an uglier side of his foreign policy record. Back to Alice. Uh, by 1906, Alice married and left the White House. In, um, in her words, she said, I felt I had to get away from the White House and my family. Not surprisingly, when she married her stepmom, Edith, told her, I want you to know I'm glad to see you leave. You have never been anything but trouble. So yeah, that tells you something about their relationship. Now, let's switch to another story that's also not one of the best moments of the Roosevelt presidency. Uh, I'm referring to the Brownsville incident, which took place in 1906. Here is what happened. In 1906, a white bartender was killed and a cop wounded in Brownsville, Texas. The local accused the unit of black soldiers were stationed at Fort Brown. 
Their white officers said, no, it couldn't be them. They were all in the barracks. Now, it's safe to say that soldiers and locals didn't like each other very much. Heavy segregation and racism directed at the soldiers played a role on one side of this. On the other hand, town people were mad that a black soldier a few weeks prior had run into a guide he had had a fight with for years, and then he had provoked an incident so that he could gun him down. So, in this one occasion, a mob gathered chasing all the black soldiers and getting into this big fight that led to one dead among the soldiers and two among the mob attacking them. So at that point in the town, they passed the ban on the soldiers from that unit visiting town again. Plus, to complicate things, there were some unverified reports of attacks against a white woman, which there, it's hard to tell Like when you dig through the documents. Was it true? Was it made up? Not entirely clear. So when this white bartender was killed and this cop wounded shortly thereafter, the locals said it was the black soldiers who did it. The investigation in this was inconclusive. The soldiers said they knew nothing about it. Their white officers confirmed they were in the barracks. And some people also suggest that the locals were blaming them with really no evidence. However, Roosevelt agreed with this decision made at this time to dishonorably discharge everyone in the battalion, all 167 men, which meant they would receive no pension and could not apply for civil service jobs. Including among these 167, there was even a guy who had fought with Roosevelt in Cuba, and some people would serve in the army for 20 years. And he did not change his mind, even when he saw evidence indicating he may have been wrong and these guys were possibly innocent. Long, long after the fact, in the 1970s, the government did an investigation which led to the conclusion that they were not guilty, pardoned them and gave them retroactive honorable discharges. So, as you may imagine, this decision by Roosevelt was extremely unpopular among black voters who had supported him at every step of the way, and even among quite a few white voters. So, this was one of the cases... I mean, Roosevelt was always unpopular with other politicians, but in this case he was unpopular even among some of his own allies. By the time we end up in 1908... It's Roosevelt's time to step away from the presidency. But he still wanted to have a say-so in regard to the election of 1908, so he supported his friend, William Howard Taft. Taft was a bit of a sad figure. He always had weight problems. He was always well over 300 pounds. Taft's mother had been brutal to him growing up and very demanding. She was always critical of her kids. Some suggest that Taft's brother ended up insane as a result of this. Taft would marry a woman who was just as harsh as his mother, and his wife obviously didn't really care for him much. She just wanted him to succeed because she was craving the, being the wife of a successful politician. She wasn't really big on to his love. So in some way, 
Taft found his mother in his wife and wrote, I quote, I need you to scold me. Now, I picture some kinky relationship here made of leather gags and whips, but let's not speculate on Taft marital life. In any case, uh, Roosevelt loved Taft because he had been his yes-man in his administration. And Taft himself, in some way, you know, he whatever Roosevelt wanted to do, Taft would always say, yes, of course, go for it. So not surprisingly, Roosevelt found his ego stroked and decided that Taft was great. The reality is that even Taft himself wasn't so sure he would make a good president. Years earlier, he had stated, I have no ambition in that direction. Any party which would nominate me would make a great mistake. Now, not all of the Roosevelts were equally fond of Taft. There's a story that by the time Taft would win the presidency in 1908, Alice buried a voodoo doll of Taft's wife into the White House lawn to curse the family. She was openly very critical of Taft, so she was banned from the White House when Taft became president. This would not be the last time that Alice would be banned from the White House. She later would crack dirty jokes at President Wilson's expenses, so he banned her from the White House as well. Most politicians were on edge around her, since she would regularly broke with the customary fake smiles and pleasantries of the political game, and she would be brutally blunt. For example, later in her life, she was the protagonist of a famous clash with Joe McCarthy, the Republican senator. She apparently told McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, you're not going to call me Alice. The trashmen and the policemen on my block call me Alice, but you may not. In any case, regardless of Alice's hatred of Taft, he won the presidency in 1908. Roosevelt was still young, and people looked up to him. So he decided to step out of the spotlight in order to give Taft a chance to be his own man without having everyone look past him to see what Roosevelt would say. So at this juncture, Roosevelt went to Africa for an 11 months long hunting expedition sponsored by the Smithsonian Institute. This was a huge expedition with 260 porters, under very rough conditions, quite a few of the men on the expedition, some died of fever, of other diseases. Some of the hunters were killed by animals there. In return, they killed lions, rhinos, giraffes. On one occasion, after killing an elephant, all the men splash bl the elephant blood on themselves from head to toe. So again, this was not your stereotypical context in which you find a U.S. president. Roosevelt actually, after the killing of the elephant, roasted its heart and ate it. Elephant heart on the menu? Wow, that's different to say the least. Roosevelt justified the hunt, saying that everything there was used for meat or was used as a species for the museum, that nothing was wasted. So that's how he responded to some people who were critical of this safari. Uh, 
before returning to the US, he would meet after this 11 month long absence, he ended up meeting his wife Edith in Europe. There they visited Italy and he received the hero welcome for the earthquake relief help that he had sent. By the time he returned to the US, he gave a speech against a special interest in politics in favor of passing child labor laws that would limit work for children. He started supporting some of the very ideas that would later be supported by a distant relative of his, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Even though FDR would actually join the Democratic Party, but as I told you earlier, party identities and their philosophies were switching around this time, so that's not as surprising as it may sound. Um, Theodore really liked FDR. He stated, I'm so fond of that boy, I would be shot for him. And there's some clear connection between some of their policies, not all of them, but definitely some. Roosevelt at this time was kind of out of his element because he was not president, he had really no office to speak of. So he wrote about this uh, wanting to be forced to relax. He wrote, what I now most want is just what is forced on me to stay here in my own home with your mother-in-law, to walk and ride with her, and in the evening sit with her before the great wood fire in the north room and hear the wind shrieking outside, to chop trees and read books and feel that I am justified in not working. Think about that. Feel that I am justified in not working. Clearly this is hardcore work ethic was a big part of what of who Roosevelt was but and you know that this was coming that there would be a but in this story but it's obvious to anyone that Roosevelt was really not built to relax at home he had a compulsive need to always be in the heat of battle and if we think that just because he's not president anymore, then his political battles are over and he's gonna go into some quiet retirement, well, that's just not the way things are gonna pan out. At that very moment, steering up on the horizon, there were fierce battles that would soon call for his attention. What was supposed to be Roosevelt's final chapter in his political life was just a timeout before he would be back in the thick of it all. By now I think you may have realized that I have involuntarily lied to you guys. I had planned on doing this Theodore Roosevelt series over two episodes, and it's clear by now that it's gonna be over three episodes. I could have tried to pack it all in the second one, but it would have taken probably at least three more weeks to be able to release the episode. 
So I figure it would be best to release uh, the second one now and then save the last bit for the third and final episodes coming up in December. I'm gonna try to commit to a specific date. If at all humanly possible, I'll try to have it out by December 18th. In any case, having said that, so we are almost ready to wrap up the Roosevelt saga, but there's still one really exciting chapter awaiting us. Having said all that, let's say a quick few thank you. First and foremost, that this episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. I mentioned to you guys in the past how much I've enjoyed Blue Apron services. The way they work is simple. You sign up for a plan, you decide how often you want to receive their deliveries, and you'll get delivered to your door all the fresh ingredients necessary to prepare a recipe of your choosing. Each meal comes with step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and instructions, pre-portioned ingredients, and it can all be prepared in usually 40 minutes or less. All of this is for less than $10 per person per meal. I've enjoyed quite a few of the recipes, had a great time cooking them with my family, so I'm very, very satisfied with it. Um, so having said that, you guys have a very good deal coming in this regard, because you get to try out three meals for free. All you got to do is go to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. You can sign up to get the three free meals, and then if you don't like it, you discontinue it. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Let's also not forget about the two other sponsors that are always in my corner, Onnit and Datsusara. Um, please check out dsgear.com, so the letter dsgear.com, and use the code Daniele at checkout for a discount on any of their hemp-made backpack, computer bags, travel bags, martial art uniforms, you name it. Anything that can be made of hemp, these guys are great at it. Also check out www.onnit.com forward slash history where you'll automatically receive a discount on any of the Onnit products that they carry. There's so much good stuff that Onnit has. Uh, In particular, well, just to mention one thing, lately I've been using their vitamin D supplement because, you know, where most people are chronically deficient in vitamin D, And I was trying to give some to my daughter, but of course giving pills to kids is not the easiest thing. Onnit has this great spray vitamin D, so it's perfect. I can give it to my daughter, no problems. So I've been enjoying that one a lot. But again, go to their website, there's so much good stuff. I'm pretty sure you'll find something you would enjoy. Also, I want to give a huge thanks to the sweet souls among you who have been donating money. the podcast that's really really sweet you find um, if you decide you want to join the sweet souls who do this it's historyonfirepodcast.com forward slash donate again historyonfirepodcast.com forward slash donate and you can decide you know you can give a one-time amount you can sign up for a regular monthly it's entirely up to you it's all very very appreciated so thank you so much also at historyonfirepodcast.com there's an Amazon link so that if you are doing, particularly now with Christmas shopping coming up and all of that, if you could please use my Amazon link, it would help me tremendously. 
And to make things easier so you never have to think about it again in the future, if you can bookmark it and just save it somewhere so that anytime you want to go on Amazon use that link, that would be really, really sweet. Um, what else do I want to tell you? Ooh, one, this is an important one, a big shout out to our fake history podcast. I really, really like this podcast. It's uh, it's a different style compared to what I do. You know, episodes tend to stick to usually about a 40-minute range, so a little faster. But I find myself listening to it a lot, and I still have to run into one episode I haven't enjoyed. I really dig what Sebastian Major has been doing with this. So check him out. You know, 40 minutes. Give him a chance once, see if it fits your style or not and go for it. Other things, um, Taoist lecture series. Those of you guys who want to check out some of some of my other audio products, I have a lecture series lasting over seven hours long in total, broken down in 16 different lectures at danielebolelli.com. So if you go to danielebolelli.com, you look under the store, uh, you'll be able to buy this lecture series for less than $10. Also there you'll find my book, Not Afraid, to which I made some references in the previous Roosevelt episode. And, uh, oh, one interesting piece of news. As I mentioned in the open, my lady and author of the History on Fire logo, Savannah M., will be doing her professional mixed martial art debut in uh, mid-December. So if any of you guys, if you find yourself in the San Diego area and you want to go see some fights... Message me, I'll try to get you the link to where to get the tickets. Also, if you want to check out her stuff, both fighting-wise, where she also posts a lot of her art, if you go to facebook.com forward slash Nari M, Nari spelled N-A-H-R-Y-E-M, again, N-A-H-R-Y-E-M, you can check out some of her art, some of her uh, pictures of fighting, things like that. Uh, also, in that regard, thank you to Onni and Atsusara, because both of these guys not only sponsor History on Fire, but they also stepped up to sponsor Savannah. Very, very sweet. And speaking of sponsoring Savannah, she was also sponsored by FightChicks.com. That's FightChicks, spelled C-H-I-X, dot com. And these guys even created a discount code for History on Fire listeners. The discount code is FIRE20. So you can go to their website, check out if you know any woman who's tough or into fighting, or simply you think they may enjoy some of the apparel, the t-shirts, and everything else that they have at fightchicks.com. Go up there, use the code FIRE20, and you will be getting a discount. Having said all this, I will now shut up and let you enjoy the rest of your day and wait to catch you for the third and last part of this Theodore Roosevelt series in uh, mid-December. (laughs) 